0: There had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature.
1: Are you ready to get your world rocked? Ready! Are you ready to get your mind blown?
2: Do it! One, two, three, four!
1: After more than 30 years of rocking out as a member of the B-52s, Kate Pearson has finally made her first solo record, Guitars and Microphones. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. Kate Pearson talks about collaborating with Sia,
3: her time in the B-52s, and more. Then we review the new surprise album from Wilco, and we take a trip to the desert island. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions and later on in the show Jim we're going to be reviewing that new Wilco record. They put it out for free on their website and less than 26 hours later mm. they were playing that entire album front to back to start off their headlining set at the Pitchfork Music Festival in Union Park in it's a Chicago. Brave move. Yeah, you don't see that too often by a headliner. We're going to review that later on in the show but first we've got some music news.
4: How you doing? Me I'm a mess. Feel powerless, hands around this bottleneck. Mm. You got a new one, I'm not impressed. And if he's trying to flex, you can give him my address. Yeah, I be trying to rest. But Lord, the devil busy. And when I do, I dream of you. And then the devil pinch me. Do you ever miss me? Do you ever wish? We get it right in the rest is history I wish I could go back in
3: time That's a track from the new Free Weezy album, a new mixtape from Lil Wayne. Lil Wayne has been in the news a lot lately. Let's go back to April when shots were fired at Lil Wayne's tour bus in Atlanta. Now we've got an indictment in that particular shooting. And named in that indictment is the rapper Young Thug, a.k.a. Jeffrey Williams, and the cash money label boss named Birdman. Cash money is Lil Wayne's record label. The uh, person directly blamed for the shooting is uh, Jimmy Winfrey, Young Thug's tour manager. Now, this little Wayne dispute with his record label, Cash Money, has been going back for several years now. Wayne has sued Birdman and Cash Money for $51 million trying to get off the label. The label is basically saying, no, we own everything that you're putting out You're not off the label. Lil Wayne released his mixtape, the free Wheezy album, through Jay-Z's Tidal streaming service. At around the same time as these indictments came down, cash money struck back at Lil Wayne and Jay-Z with a $50 million lawsuit against Tidal. They say that Title's promotion is a desperate and illegal attempt to save their struggling streaming service. They can't put Lil Wayne's music out without our permission, which they didn't get. So this whole dispute between Lil Wayne and his record label has escalated to the point where they're suing each other and now shots are being fired.
1: Greg, that's a little bit of a song called Dino from a band named Harmonia. In 1974, we are playing it in tribute to Dieter Mobius, who recently died at the age of 71. Mobius is one of these characters that was an instrumental part of the late 60s, early 70s movement in Germany known as Krautrock. We have talked about several of these bands, Neu, Cannes, Kraftwerk, of course, over the years here on the show. I don't think we've ever uh, paid tribute to Mobius before, and that's a shame. He was born in Switzerland in 1944 and was a real pioneer of the synthesizer, the analog synthesizer. It has been said that what these bands in Germany were doing after the psychedelic explosions in the US and the UK, 67, 68, was reinventing rock and roll, both rhythmically and sonically. And then with these new instruments, the analog synthesizers, they were to the synthesizer what Chuck Berry was, the electric guitar. He picks this up, he makes it the rock and roll instrument. All of these groups were key in that way. Mobius had had a founding role in Tangerine Dream, but he split with that band early on, 69. Tangerine Dream, of course, would go on to do many great Albums and soundtrack work, I think is how they're best known in the U.S. He then got together with Hans, Joachim, Rodelius. These two were partners pretty much throughout their musical careers as a band called Cluster. Cluster did a lot of wonderful ambient electronic music, but I think they were always at their best when they were working with other people. That band Harmonia featured Mobius and Rodelius Plus, Michael Rother, the guitarist from Noy, they made two albums. Great stuff. You hear that Noy driving beat in that clip we played. But get the bell ready. They also worked, Mobius and Rodelius, on two albums and a third that was only released a few years ago with Brian Eno as Cluster Hmm. and Eno. I'm going to play a song from the After the Heat album from 1979 by Cluster and Eno. You hear Eno on vocals. Eno had paid the compliment to Harmonia that they were, quote, the world's most important rock band. (laughs) That's how highly regarded this guy was and his many efforts. He had a lot of solo albums, too, right up until 2014, his last solo effort. And he gave a lecture last year in Berlin. People asked him what he thought of the current electronic scene that he had done so much to inspire. And he said, you know, I like a lot of it. But they have certain programs these musicians use. And how do I say it? I feel it's not as deep and warm as what we were doing in the 70s. And I would agree to a large extent. Listen to Broken Head here by Cluster and Eno from 79 on Sound Opinions.
3: head from cluster dieter Mobius the co-founder of that band dead at the age of 71.
5: I won't take a
3: You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott, and he's Jim Derogatis, and that's Throw Down the Roses, a track from our guest Kate Pearson's debut solo album. Most people should know that Kate joined the new wave rock band, the B-52s, back in the 70s, 1976 to be precise. The members quickly found out there weren't a lot of gigs going on in Athens, Georgia, where they were from, so they started trekking up to New York City quite a bit to play clubs like CBGB and Max's Kansas City, where they really got noticed. And soon enough, the B-52s became famous for their rock and roll-influenced dance music, the vocal stylings of Kate Pearson and Cindy Wilson, and of course,
1: those huge hairdos. That's right, Greg. With hits like the Yoko Ono-influenced Rock Lobster, the B-52s made a big impact right out of the gate with their first album. But then the group reached the peak of its fame and mainstream success in 1989 with the album Cosmic Thing. Outside of the band, Pearson also collaborated with talented artists like REM, Iggy Pop, and most recently, Sia. And finally, in 2015, after more than 30 years, she released her first solo record, Guitars and Microphones. When Kate joined us a few weeks ago, we started our conversation by talking about just how long we've waited for her to start a solo career. Congratulations on this solo record, Guitars and Microphones. 1976 or 75, you've been doing this since, and just now, solo album number one. That is a heck of a long time to have kept us waiting.
5: Yeah, I've been waiting too. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's asked me this question, and I've answered in various ways, like the band is so busy, and the B-52s are touring all the time, and I finally gave myself permission. But there's an element in there of fear, I have to say, of just putting something out there aside from the band, of being compared to the band. So there was a part of me that thought, maybe I can't write. I used to write prolifically. When I was in high school, I had a protest band called the Sun Donuts.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: So part of me felt like, maybe I can't do this. I, I can't say there was any inertia or lack of trying, but I did write a bunch of songs. But getting it out there was hard, Till my partner Monica said to our friend Sia, can you help her just get it out there? And I scrapped all the old songs I had written, and I had even recorded some for an album, and I had Bernie Worrell and all these great people playing on it, but I just chucked it all and started writing with Sia and started a brand-new project, and it all clicked and was tremendous fun writing, and we got it out to the world. (laughs) ¶¶
1: Well, Greg and I are big fans of Sia. It's not the first person that would spring to mind for me for you to collaborate with.
5: I didn't even know when I first met her, and we were friends first, I didn't know who she was. And we met at the band Betty, had a birthday party, and everyone's always required to sing at their party. So she got up and sang, and I sang something, and I thought, wow, this woman has a great voice. Then we became friends, and I started realizing who she was, but really before she started writing for The Big Guns, she started writing with me this before Rihanna and Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: The title track, Guitars and Microphones, you're basically looking back uh, on your earliest days, right? That's a song yes. you wrote with Sia. How, d- how did that come together, and what prompted you to write a song that kind of gave that sort of long-view perspective of how you started out in music?
5: Well, our writing, was, again, like the B-52s, was collaborative but a lot quicker. This is a song I had the title for, and I had lyrics. And it just was one of those things that was something I wanted to express as a solo artist. It was something more autobiographical and personal and emotional. So this song just, you know, really came to mind when we were jamming. Bended together by guitars and microphones, we wrote our proto songs. We wrote our proto songs.
3: I love the fact that you're bringing this perspective to your career. I mean, the the life of Kate Pearson before there was the B-52s. And it seemed like you were a very politically conscious young woman back in the day. Where did that come from?
5: Well, I have to credit people like Pete Seeger. There was a big folk revival when I was a kid. Of course, I listened to the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and all the psychedelic groups and everything. But Pete Seeger in particular had these topical political songs. And it really influenced me and taught me as a you know, teenager.
1: It was back in 1942.
3: I was a member of a good platoon. We were on maneuvers in Louisiana one night by the light of the moon. The captain told us to ford a river. That's how it all began. We were knee deep in the big muddy. The big fool said to push on.
5: I wrote songs about the civil rights movement, and I became very interested in all things political.
1: Tell us about one of these anthemic protest tunes by the Sun Donuts.
5: Well, one is called Kali Lee Wilkins is Free, and I sent it into a, a broadside magazine, and it was about someone who had murdered, I can't remember all the details now, but he was on trial for murdering a civil rights worker, and there were 11 white supremacists on the jury, so I included all that in the song. I had some line about no death song was sung and the jury was hung instead of Kali Lee. So, you know, I was pretty right on. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's hardcore stuff. I'm really impressed. Yeah.
5: But I have to say it was, I mean, I probably, I was greatly influenced by this. And I think a lot of people were by the music. And it just proves that music can change people's perspective. And it really influences kids.
3: this transition from what you were doing in the Sun Donuts to the the (laughs) B-52s, where I think there was still very much a social and political consciousness there, but it was much more subtle and and maybe not so much on the surface. But, you know, how did you make that transition?
5: Well, all of us in the B-52s, we started as a group of friends in Athens, Georgia, just sort of hanging out together. And I had a place out in the country that was literally kind of the love shack Because it was set way back in the middle of a field, a funky shack, (laughs) and Mm. so, and I think everyone in the band, particularly Fred, is very, very political. Keith follows more of the spiritual aspect of things, and and Ricky was interested in all things technical, and so we had this great mesh of things. Our mind, we're all interested in science fiction and futuristic stuff and kitsch, and we had a mind meld, and all this stuff came out. But we did have political messages in our songs, but we never wanted to hit anyone over the head. The primary aspect of it was we wanted to have fun. We wanted to create dance music because we love to dance. It just sort of happened that these sort of political messages got in our lyrics.
3: Did the B-52 hairstyle come before or after the band named itself?
5: Well, we used to wear wigs to parties. That was part of the party aspect. So that was kind of done before the band, but Keith Strickland had this idea of the band being called the B-52s, And he sort of had this dream, a waking dream, of these women with big, high bouffants, which was reminiscent of a nose cone of a bomb, so it was a slang term, (laughs) B-52, for these hairdos. So he kind of had this vision of this band with big hairdos.
1: After a quick break we'll continue our conversation with Kate Pearson of the B52s. Then we'll review the new free album from Wilco and I'll put a quarter in the Desert Island Jukebox. That's in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that's Planet Claire from the B 52's self titled first album. A few weeks ago, we talked with B 52's singer Kate Pearson about how the record almost had an element of punk in it and how the band produced those songs. I asked her what was so magical about the simplicity of
5: the band's music. Well, I have to say, it was pretty minimal, but I have to, but Ricky, I really credit Ricky's guitar riffs that were so melodic and still stinging kind of riffs that fueled a lot of songs and our very unusual arrangements because we jammed together and wrote most of the songs together. There were some really unusual song structures where the verses were never the same. The choruses didn't come till the end, maybe. But we just had this very uncategorizable sort of sense. I don't think we fell into punk or new wave or anything, really.
3: Yeah, like Rock Lobster or something like that. If you sort of broke that song down, you'd almost think, like, that's a progressive rock song. You know, it could be. I mean, it's it got so many parts to it, or at least it seemed yeah. to be.
5: It builds on this riff that Ricky, when Keith came into the studio one day, we had this old studio. Ricky was sitting there, and Ricky said, I've just written the dumbest guitar riff. And it was <laughs> da 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 And that's like genius guitar riff. It's simple, yes, it is simple, but it's just like genius in its simplicity, I guess.
1: That's the greatest and possibly the only mention of a narwhal in rock history. (laughs) That's true.
5: Did you guys just,
1: would you be sitting around and throwing this stuff out and just cracking each other up?
5: Oh, yeah, yeah. We would laugh a lot. I mean, actually, Rock Lobster was written uh, really with Ricky and Fred because Fred had gone to this disco and seen these crustaceans projected on the walls and and had this kind of lyrics for that. And then we kind of all jammed on those sounds, the fish sounds and the harmonies and stuff. But yeah, Fred's mind, you just can't fathom it. It's a deep, many fathoms deep.
3: (laughs) And at the same time, it's a musically very rich song. I mean, you sing this beautiful counterpoint melody at the end. So essentially, there's a lot of musical sophistication mixed in with all that fun and frivolity. And you snuck a lot of cool stuff into a few minutes of music.
5: Yeah, I mean, our influences were very eclectic, including all the sort of 60s music and the Beatles, but also surf music and Ima Sumac and Yoko Ono and just African music that we listened to because the University of Georgia had this great music library. So we'd check out these great tapes and we'd listen to pygmy music and you name it. Prez Prado, we had very eclectic influence, including Nina Roto, who wrote... The soundtracks for all the Fellini movies, and Fellini, yep. we almost mm-hmm. called ourselves Fellini's children because we <laughs> worship Fellini and his films, and that was a big influence on our visual aspect.
3: You mentioned Yoko Ono, and I'm sure you've been asked about this or read the comments that Lennon gave uh, around the time of his comeback. Oh yeah, that the B52s brought us back. They 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 validated Yoko Ono's whole career with <laughs> with those.
1: <laughs> yeah. there it is.
3: <laughs> Was that a conscious move on your part? And what did you feel when Lennon said that?
5: Well, I mean, we were just overwhelmed and... I mean, we couldn't believe that he'd even heard of us. It was so amazing. But we loved Yoko Ono. I mean, genuinely loved her records, and we played them all the time. And when we were jamming, Cindy just started that at the end of Rock Lobster, just did that, and that was just part of the jam. So it's not something anyone ever thought, hey, let's do a Yoko tribute here. It's just one of those things that happened in the jam, and was this the fish sound I think what John Lennon saw was this was a time when something like that could be appreciated.
1: Some very impressive fans, you know, John Lennon. And, and uh, you know, when I first fell in love with the B-52s, Kate, you guys were coming up north. I grew up in Hoboken, just next door to where you grew up. Oh, and Weehawken Hawken and Hoboken. I think I saw you once with Pylon and oh, once yeah. with oh, – what's that other – who was that other band? Oh, yeah, R.E.M.
5: R.E.M., yeah. <laughs> Oh, and yeah. you never
1: It seems to me that in rock history it's been written out the roads that the B-52s paved for what would become the indie underground explosion of the 80s and then into the alternative era. We'll get there. Yeah. But you guys showed people in little towns like Athens how to get in a van, how to drive all the way up and play the rat in Boston and play Maxwell's in Hoboken. And you, you kind of paved the way for people.
5: Yeah, because there were no places to play in Athens. Uh, our friend Danny Beard had a party for us to play at Emory University at the Coke Room. And then we played a couple of parties. And then it was like, oh, okay, where can we play? <laughs> so someone yeah. said, uh, this group, the fans, it was the only kind of punk band in Atlanta, said, go up to New York, take a tape to Max's Kansas City and CBGB. So we were rejected by CBGB's. Max has said, come on up. So we drove up in Croton, which was the station wagon that Cindy and Ricky's parents loaned us. We're all packed in there. We did our set, which they asked us to cut. So we'd only had about 20 minutes worth of stuff anyway. So we did our set and we got back in the car. and, And Danny Beard, he's the owner of Wax and Facts Records, and he put out our first single of Rock Lobster and 52 Girls. He ran upstairs and said to Dear France, the booker, do you want a back? And she said, yes, yes, of course we want the back. So we started blazing this trail from Athens to New York and playing CBGBs, Max's Kansas City, Hurrahs, uh, the Mud yeah. Club.
3: Yeah, that was a heady time. And then you go from that, those very humble beginnings in Athens where there was practically no place to play, to begging for gigs in New York, to recording a freaking debut album for Warner Brothers in, uh, what was it, Nassau? With yes, Chris Chris because, Blackwell.
5: because we were also signed to Island Records in Europe. So we recorded at Chris Blackwell's studio in the Bahamas. He was the producer, and we were on his record label too. So wow. we couldn't believe it. We got there and we flew there and it was just a whirlwind, you know, because yeah, right. One minute we were in Athens and then the next minute we were flying to the Bahamas. <laughs> First crazy. thing we did when we landed, we the person that was leading us to the studio just drove like a bat out of hell, and we totally lost her, so we just went into town and had cocktails. (laughs) (laughs) They'll find us when they want. Yeah, exactly.
3: What would any band do in this moment? I, I know, we'll have a drink. But yet, at the same time, I think the the charm of that record is despite the fact that you were signed to this label was that it was still it seemed like Blackwell was intent upon allowing you to be yourselves instead of trying to turn you into some kind of pop phenomenon you were he He was very much smitten with the band. It seems like that record was very very much you as opposed to some producer's vision of what the band could be.
5: yes, he insisted on us playing exactly what we play on stage. So I played all the keyboard bass parts, and I played some guitar, too. And, you know, Ricky thought, well, he could obviously play the parts better. But Chris said, no, no, I want everyone to play exactly what they play. And when we heard the record, we were like, oh, my God, it sounds so thin. And we thought it was going to be big. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But that was really a genius move on his part to capture this kind of sound that we had. We didn't even realize how good and minimal and different it was.
1: I was at Request Magazine in Minneapolis as an editor when Cosmic Thing came out, and we put you on the cover. I think the extraordinary thing about the B-52s, there was a lot of success with the first album. Wild Planet was also a, a hit. And then the B-52s kind of, you know, quote-unquote, got a little old, everybody thought. Well, Ricky also died in 85. In that horrible, right, the tragic death of, of Ricky, a founding member of the band. People thought the B-52s were done. And then you guys came thundering back with what turned out to be the biggest and most successful era of the career.
5: Yes, cosmic thing. And we did think we thought we were done, possibly. I mean, we never pushed ourselves to write an album a year or anything like that. But after Ricky died, it seemed like we just didn't know what the future held and we didn't make any plan. We were just grieving. And then after some time had passed, we were like, Life is so precious, and what we have is so great. We can't let this go. And it also became part of this healing process, really, to kind of bring back Ricky's spirit in some ways. I felt like the spirit was with us when we were writing this, and I just think it it conjured that time in Athens with Ricky.
1: Tell me about the song Rome. I read a quote you just gave in an interview about how that's always a very emotional song for you.
5: Well the lyrics are written by our good friend Robert Waldrup. So he sent us those lyrics and we were jamming and I pulled them out and said, You know, we've got to do this song. And the lyrics just are so meaningful and so beautiful.
2: Take
3: Sound Opinions, and we're here with Kate Pearson of the B-52s. Kate, you know, Cosmic Thing had a very contemporary sound to it, and suddenly you find yourself with a whole new group of fans because of it. And you were originally perceived as this punky dance band with kind of a cult following. What was it like to achieve that new level of success after all those years?
5: We were slow to realize that this, what was happening, because mainstream radio just thought it was weird. And... Thank goodness. We just started touring. We started touring little clubs, and then all of a sudden, oh, the record's kind of blowing up, and we started playing theaters, and then other oh, record's really blowing up, and we start playing more <laughs> just big places. And, and also, we had an expanded band. It was pretty amazing, the players we had that made the band kind of the best band. It's like Talking Heads when they had their big band, too. It's just like... I was
1: just going to say, it was your stop-making-sense phase.
5: <laughs> yeah, it just reached its pinnacle, and we played with those same players pretty much ever since... You know, it's a whole different, it is a different band, really. The kind of ascending to big rock band came slowly in a way. It was just like, wow, wow, this is, then whoa, it happened. (laughs) And it was was great to be accepted because I guess to always be considered alternative was a little bit like, wow, when are we going to stop? being called zany and wacky, and we don't know what they are.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, always ahead of the curve, too. In the same way that the B-52s and Wild Planet sort of presaged what would happen in the indie Rock 80s, Cosmic Thing uh, arrives and is sort of pointing away to this thing called alternative, which is just around the corner.
5: Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Yeah, ahead of the curve. That's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're we're well, going up and down the roller coaster.
3: So, Kate, in your career you've been asked to collaborate with a lot of major artists, and I remember talking to Iggy Pop in the early 90s after you'd done Candy with him, and he said there's a quality to your voice that nobody has. He described it as this innocence and at the same time a knowing innocence, and it's probably between you and him exactly what he was talking about there, (laughs) but what was it like working with people like Iggy Pop, the Ramones, and R.E.M. during that period?
5: It was a great experience. I love Iggy Pop. It was really fun, and we went on a couple of shows, late night shows together, and it was just all a great experience. And the greatest thing was, he said, just do what you want. You know, he never directed me. He said, just add the harmony, do the second verse. You can change the words if you want, and you know, just uh, just do that harmony. Candy, candy,
2: candy.
1: I've been waiting forever to ask you this question, Kate. I remember I spent four or five days with each of the individual members of R.E.M. before Out of Time came out. And I had an advanced cassette, of course, right? And I remember talking with Michael about Shiny Happy People. And he said, I'm really bummed out because everybody thinks it's the most cynical, ironic song I've ever written. (laughs) And I remember saying, I think it's just like celebratory, joyful. I'm getting Pet Sounds Beach Boys out of it almost, right? But what did you think when he says, hey, would you sing with me? Was your take on it cynical or joyful?
5: Oh, joyful, totally. And his good friend and my friend, April Chapman, was a school teacher. She had her class make the backdrop for the video. And to me, it was just this total, like, upbeat, joyful song. And I had no yeah. kind of – I thought maybe there was a, a drop of this – I- irony in it that that they would do, but not cynicism. I just thought like REM, who's known for these deep, dark songs of great meaning, to do something yeah. like this was a little bit just funny.
1: It's to frown when you're hearing that song. No,
5: Absolutely, it's, it's great.
3: You know, I feel like when you're singing, Kate, I picture this 16-year-old girl standing in front of her mirror just belting it out into her hairbrush. <laughs> I mean, you have this great sincerity and this powerful, joyful voice every time you sing. And that can be hard to do when you're singing about narwhals. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, where did that voice come from? Did you get any training for it?
5: I didn't practice in front of the mirror. I had a guitar, and so I just started writing songs and singing. So I guess it came naturally to me. That's always what I wanted to do. Before Cosmic Thing, I started taking voice lessons from Janet Frank, who unfortunately passed away. But she taught me how to sing and not hurt your voice. It wasn't about style. She didn't try to teach me a different style. And actually, Fred took some lessons from her, too. And she just praised him for his unique voice. Because a lot of times Fred will say, I can't sing. Or rather, I can't sing. But... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he has got a really great voice, and so she taught us, like, how a baby can cry and cry and cry and not get hoarse. So that helped me not lose my voice, but I think there is sort of, when I sing, I think I just let it all out. All the emotion and kind of feeling just comes through.
1: So now that you've got your solo record out, is there going to be new music from the B-52s at some point?
5: I don't think so. I don't really see that, but yeah. I never say never, because there are many times when people in the band said, I'm not doing this anymore, or we just kept on going, and I think that's one of the reasons we kept on going, was that people were patient, we know each other, it's kind of like, okay, we'll just wait and see if the stars align, and so you never know what the stars might align, but I think if we do something, it might be just one song, you never know what may come about. It's been an
3: honor to talk to Kate Pearson, and thank you so much, Kate, for being our guest on Sound Opinions.
5: Thank you so much. It was fun to talk to you.
3: Share your opinions on our conversation with Kate, the B-52s, or anything in the music world on our hotline at 888-859-1800. After the break, we'll review the latest from Wilco, and Jim will deliver his Desert Island jukebox. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
2: I'll never let you ride I'll never bet you don't know I sound my this in the night I'll never let it show No, when I'm towing the track When no one a eight to the side
3: Welcome back to sound opinions i 'm Greg Cott with Jim Dirigatis, and that is Wilco with a track called Pickled Ginger from the new studio album Star Wars on wilco 's own Dbpm records This record came out of nowhere Jim I mean Wilco has been going strong since one thousand nine hundred and ninety four it 's put out records regularly since then, collaborations with Billy Bragg, the mermaid avenue collaborations on on Woody Guthrie records, their own records. Jeff Tweedy, the main singer in the band, put out a record with his son Spencer
1: Tweedy last year. Simply labeled Tweedy. I think they were guests on Sound Opinion. They were right indeed. And, I, and uh, I seem to have read all of this stuff in a book once. Uh, <laughs> by oh yeah, you wrote it.
3: Yes, I did write a book on this band once. And the, the thing is, though, a new Wilco studio album. I think there hasn't been a lull quite as long as this one between two studio records. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere. A new studio record appears. It's called Star Wars. It was put up on their website without any advance warning whatsoever. People kind of had an inkling that they were working on something, but didn't realize that it was so imminent until it actually came out. They made it available for free for download from their website. Here's a track from it. It's called Random Name Generator from the new Wilco record Star Wars on Sound Opinions.
1: That is Random Name Generator from Wilco album number nine, Star Wars. Don't be confused. It has nothing to do with the Lucas franchise. I don't want them getting into trouble (laughs) the way Amy Schumer just did. Greg, I think this is the album I've been waiting for Wilco to make for about a decade now. I think it's got the experimentation that we had in what remains their masterpiece, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. I'm eager to hear your thoughts on that subject, along with the wonderful kind of pop, folk rock, roots rock sensibility with which they started, okay? A lot of people diss Wilco. This is dad rock. It's boring. It's like Neil Young of their generation. Well, I, you know, I don't think Neil Young is boring. I don't think Wilco's ever been boring. But I do think the last two albums have been less inspired than that period in the early 2000s when they were really incorporating the very inventive drumming of Glenn Kochi. And my complaint has been, you know, you've got this incredible three-guitar lineup. Tweedy, no slouch on guitar. Nels Klein, a masterful avant-garde noise guitarist. Mm. And Pat Sansone, a very talented multi-instrumentalist with, with a pop ear, kind of a big star-like guitarist, also able to bring in keyboards and stuff. I wanted to see the fire that I see on stage on record with this three-guitar lineup, and I think they've got it again. There's you know some abrasive noise. There's some punk ferocity. There's also a lot of uh, just very beautiful music. This is Wilco doing what Wilco does best. Are they breaking new ground? No, but I love this album. I think it's a buy-it album, and I'm really becoming a huge fan of the band again after just being eh, a new Wilco album for the last few
3: yeah, I think the last really great record was around that period 10 years ago. You know, the post-Yankee Hotel, Foxtrot era, there was one more record after that I, th- I think was really great, A Ghost is Born. Yeah. And then after that, a little flat flattening out, a little bit more predictability in it. And, you know, it was interesting. When we had Jeff Tweedy and his son Spencer on the show Last year, Jeff was talking about this notion of, you know, it's a committee approach with this band, you know, it was so much easier to make a record with my son, because we just went in there and did it, you Well, know? he's
1: always been the reluctant dictator, <laughs> yeah. you know, he is clearly the leader of this band, but he doesn't want to be like Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins, where right. he is the band. Right, and, and, and he's got a lot of talented musicians
3: in this band, I mean, there's a lot of voices that I think he feels like, I don't want to leave anybody out, but I think we'll have to get to the bottom of this eventually, but... It feels to me like a very off-the-cuff record, like it wasn't overly fussy, like they didn't spend a lot of time refining and changing and editing. And maybe maybe they did, but it sure sounds off-the-cuff, very spontaneous. It's only 34 minutes long.
1: Yeah, eleven, eleven nice.
3: 11 songs, bam, bam, bam. They're hitting you out of the gate with these quick, sharp, aggressive songs. And I think if you strip these songs down, this I didn't realize until I would got into it for about the ninth or 10th listen. If you strip them back down to an acoustic guitar, Guitar, there's still a song there, but there's so much kind of gnarly, dirty, grimy stuff, you know, backwards yeah. effects in the studio. There, there's, a, there's this great combination of live instrumentation and using
1: the studio as an instrument well, yeah, and, and combining it, it in really... Cool ways. Many people love Summer Teeth, their most Pet Sounds orchestral album, but it was a little overcooked in the studio, I think. This, mm-hmm. this really hits the line between the, the layers of sound and the immediacy of punk rock. You can't forget, this is a guy, Tweety, who grew up listening to the Stooges. Right. This, they love their punk rock. They love their experimentation. I think they marry
3: those two worlds as well as they have on any record since Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. It's a buy-it record.
1: I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Just to cast away,
2: island lost at sea, oh. Now I'm stranded on my own. Sandy far from home. Come on.
4: You remember, we were shipwrecked together.
2: Sandy, I'm so far from home. Sandy, yeah, mama.
3: As often as possible on this show, we like to take a trip out to the desert island. Jim, you are climbing into the motorboat right now. You're going to play us a record you cannot live without when you get to that island. What's it going to be?
1: Well, you know, Greg I was in a German frame of mind because we just paid tribute to Dieter Möbius, the founder of Cluster, and and I was in Europe on vacation and all the TV stations are in German, you know. But I've been loving this show called Deutschland 83, which is like The Americans, it's about spies, but it's in East <laughs> Germany in 1983 and Reagan's going to start the nuclear war. Anyway, the theme song is by Peter Schilling, who is one of many 80s artists who tried to better Bowie at being Bowie. He really is sort of a one-hit wonder. And you know, I'm not a huge Bowie fan, right? But I love those bands in the 80s that tried to do Bowie. Gary Newman, Sieg Sieg, Sputnik, Spando Ballet, even Duran Duran at times, right? Because I think they kind of dumbed down Bowie, minus the pretensions. Schilling had this great answer record in 1983 to Space Oddity. Bowie's famous, you know, Major Tom to Ground Control, right? Where he's like trying to update the story of what happened to Major Tom. Major Tom finally makes it back to the U.S. This song, Deutschland 83, we're going to do a whole show in a couple of weeks on TV, on the radio, some great use of music of late on television. It uses the English version of this single, but I thought we have to stick with the original German just because I like the way he counts down four, three, two, one in German. It's like uh, 99 Love balloons Mm -hmm. it's so much better in German right (laughs) so this is uh, Peter Schilling from 1983 sort of a guilty pleasure Desert Island jukebox track it's called Major Tom Coming Home I'm not even gonna try the German title okay here it is on Sound Opinions
4: Start. Alles klar, Experten schreiben sich um ein paar Daten. Die Crow hat dann noch ein paar Fragen, doch der Countdown läuft. Effektivität, bestimmt das Handeln, man verlässt sich blind auf den anderen. Jeder weiß genau, was von ihm abhängt, jeder ist im Stress. Doch Major Tom macht einen Scherz. Down here.
1: German synth-pop one-hit wonder Peter Schilling with Major Tom coming home, a 1983 Desert Island pick. Greg, what's on the show next week? Jim, next week we're going to look at your favorite band, buddy, 50 Years of the Grateful Dead. I'm tripping, man. (laughs) As always, Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lin, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and our intern, Emily Espinel. On sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888
2: 859 1800. Long distance operator. Place call, it's not the fun. Long
0: hey Jim and Greg, this is Andy from Glen Allen, Illinois. I really enjoyed uh, your latest Tame Pala interview performances on the show. You asked about favorite contemporary psychedelic rock. I've always been a big fan of Mike Donovan from Sick Alps. He has a new project with Ty Seagal called Piecers, and it's uh, it's still kind of fried psychedelic, kind of bummer vibe of Sick Alps. And I think it's great and some of his best stuff. Anyway, congratulations on 500 plus shows and keep them coming. about the confederate flag issue I, I love what the drive-by truckers said you know because there is so much of, of southern culture that is and and to, to, to make it an amalgam of southern culture to talk about the music to talk about the food to talk about the appreciation of nature stay
2: out the way of the southern thing and no hatred better raise your-
0: Brings up the issue of how much war is part of our culture. Bye bye. My name is Paul Simons. I'm calling about the Confederate flag and artists that uh, have used it. There are some thoughtless, soulless, heartless people, Kid Rock. I bet Ted Nugent likes it too. But it's an atrocious symbol. And it needs to be understood as such. And speaking of Southern pride, take a little pride in Muddy Waters, B.B. King, Albert King, Booker T. and the M.G.s, the Memphis Sound. Thank you very much. Take care.
2: I got more that I'm going to keep. So let the good time roll. Let the good time roll.
0: Hi, Jim and Greg. This is sort of, in a way, a response to a call that I heard on your Tame and Polish show in which a guy complained about you being excessively heteronormative. And speaking for myself as a queer person, I think you do a pretty good job overall. But on that note, I would like to actually ask that you look into a band that you might be interested in but might not have heard of, a spherical object. They're sort of one of those lost post punk bands from the eighties, and their front person transitioned shortly after the band broke up, but at the same time their music in general just kind of plays with gender roles in the lyrics and is just generally very eccentric.
2: Now I feel blue.
0: definitely worth looking into, not to everyone's taste, but worth bringing some exposure to artists like this. Thank you. Close
2: my eyes Just always running from What I'm a walking, walking
5: No more messages.
3: To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.